everyone, and welcome to Blunderphonics, where we put music's most troubled productions to tape. Stuck the dismount on that one. My name is Spencer Faust. I give you a 10 out of 10. I'm Jack Durback, and Spencer- Thank you, Russian judge. <laughs> Spencer, you're actually hosting this episode. That's a fact. And this one is all about the Dixie Chicks. Now, you and I aren't tremendously versed in country. Is that right? Would you, would you agree with that? You know, I think back to middle school, whenever you would ask somebody what their favorite music is, uh, the common answer was, oh, I listen to everything except rap and country. And while I have eventually listened to rap, country is still something that's very foreign to me. I listened to, like, Johnny Cash's records when he was elderly and really sad. That's, that's about my extent. Yeah, my suburban stick has at least touched rap. Um, of course, I, I needed Macklemore to be an emissary and really hold my hand <laughs> into that genre. But I eventually listened to Denzel Curry. It's fine. <laughs> You can say you guys could say I'm woke. All right, let's just. <laughs> it took a rage against the machine cover until it happened, but it happened. But yeah, country is is one of those genres I've not dipped my toes in. Um, mostly out of pure luck, I've managed to avoid it this long in life. <laughs> um, I've had such minimal exposure that one of the only instances is is work obligated, <laughs> where you and I both had to <laughs> film the same country concert. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, People from Missouri love country. Hardest uh, paycheck I've ever earned. Good. <laughs> I, what an awful day. I, I listen to a lot of folk, and I know some people would confuse that with country, but as far as I'm aware, folk is just... Tolerable? Yeah, no twang, pretty much. Oh, you know? the twang. <laughs> Oh, the twang. You know, Neil Young is almost there, but instead of having that twangy voice, he sounds like a dying goat. So Yeah, precisely. Jack, where better to start than the origins of the chicks, those chicks of Dixie? I thought you were going to start with the origins of our country, America. It's very important to remember that in 1776, George Washington defeated colonialism. And any and all criticism after that point is moot. He picked up a fiddle and then country was born. God, don't trigger me. I hate the fiddle. The Dixie Chicks had their anticlimactic beginnings in 1989, 31 years ago, in the bluegrass scene of Dallas, Tejas. The group started out as a rootin' tootin' gang of cowgirls, complete with cowgirl outfits, including Laura Lynch, Robin Macy, and the sisters Marty and Emily Irwin. They busked around Texas music festivals, dusty dive bars, and probably some unscrupulous horse races uh, for the better part of six years without very much success. Though they hadn't struck oil per se, the first few years were rife with drilling and whatever else happens when you're looking for... I'm bad with metaphors. I, Marty, can you, I, I need you to explain about what happened with drilling and these cowgirls. You need you, to explain uh, that one. Uh, the, the, I, I was with were, you for most they of these metaphors. Up the, uh, they had the towers going and like, God, I saw there will be blood like once. Um, they got the <laughs> drills going. They hadn't hit the oil, but they were like getting ready to hit it. Um, okay, gotcha. Daniel Day-Lewis was there. Paul F. Tompkins has a brief cameo. It's quite funny. <laughs> Marty, one of these two sisters, Marty was winning big at National Fiddle Championships two years in a row in the early 90s. And on top of that, they got an unexpected financial backing for their first record, which came in the form of a $10,000 check from Penny Cook, the daughter of famed U.S. Senator John Tower. No relation to Phil Towel. <laughs> I was really expecting it. I was expecting a return. Now, they used half that check to produce their first album, and they began to develop a fan base around Dallas, Austin, and Nashville, Tennessee. 
Now, there's a bit of a geographical leap on that last one, but in the following years, they wrote more albums without a major label's support and began to uh, produce their sound a little bit more, opting for a bigger, polished tune compared to their uh, festival bluegrass roots. Marty and Emily, they pulled a mutiny and consolidated a majority control of the band when Robin and Laura left in 92 and 93. Laura was floundering in the spotlight as the band's lead singer, and she just couldn't hack the touring life, opting instead to spend more time with her daughter, which... Meanwhile, oh, God, gross. Robin uh, wasn't a very big fan of the band's bigger, bombastic tonal shift, and so she wasn't feeling it, her heart wasn't in it, and there's a bit of uh, dispute over whether she voluntarily left or if the manager and the rest of the band forced her out, but uh, all she's said up to this point is she doesn't regret leaving. To fill out their repertoire... The duo became a trio, with the addition of Natalie Maines, daughter of Hall of Famer and Grammy Award winner Lloyd Maines. I'm assuming there's no name recognition there? Absolutely none. Yeah, me neither. Uh, (laughs) Natalie, at the time, was on a full-ride scholarship at the Berklee College of Music. Her dad Lloyd, seeing that the, uh, the chicks were in need of some fresh blood, sent them the audition tape that Natalie used to win her scholarship. Now, when they liked her sound and offered her the part, Natalie quit her full ride to join up with an act that still hadn't been signed by a major record label. It's the risk that really, you know, helps you take off in the music industry. You gotta leave Berkeley. All great musicians who went to Berkeley dropped out, as far as I'm aware. Uh, actually, you're not... You're I, so not wrong. I kind of want to look up if she went to the same classes as Dream Theater, because that would be one crazy collaboration. It's, I would believe it because uh, within a few years, I, like, I think, what, four years later, uh, Berkeley gave Maines her very own honorary degree for, quote, keeping with the tradition of showbiz, naming her an alumni in 1999. So they basically mark you whether you want it or not. They're like, we need more <laughs> famous people. Stop leaving us. Stop being and successful I- so you can pay our loans. I I just wish that was still how it worked, though. Like, <laughs> I, could I have dropped out of Truman State in 2016, but like still stuck with podcasting when I've gotten an honorary bachelor's? <laughs> I'm just saying, give it a shot, guys. Like, go to trade school and then drop out and still be a plumber. You just pull like a George Costanza and just say, I quit. And they're like, I like your guts. You're moving up. I want your job. <laughs> Do you think they call her for alumni donations? <laughs> oh, Absolutely. The addition of Mains was indeed a payoff. Labels eventually overcame the trepidation of signing an all-female act, which, yeah, apparently that was a tough sell for the entertainment industry. Soak that in. The uh, Chicks de la Dixie were signed by Sony's Nashville division in 1995. As their sound reached something more contemporary, the singles started charting. I Can Love You Better hit the top 10 American country music charts in late 1997, which is a bit redundant. Because who Yeehaw. listens to country music outside Yeehaw. of the U.S.? And our parents. <laughs> and why? What's wrong with you? <laughs> in 1998, three more singles hit the charts. Uh, There's Your Trouble, You Were Mine, and Wide Open. These now, are all invigorating song titles. <laughs> it wasn't on the list, but I believe they had other chart toppers, such as uh, Varmint from Vermont, uh, Truck Love. <laughs> um, and everyone's favorite, Moonshine Mamas. <laughs> Y'all, I think I think it was just, just y'all was one. <laughs> <laughs> 
we're almost there, Jack, but we're we're almost caught up to the day's album. But first, you, like you remember the parts of Lord of the Rings where they they cut back to Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas just sprinting across miles of New Zealand, in, like a dead <laughs> sprint. That's where we're at. We're getting there. It's all okay. about the journey. <laughs> gotcha. We're, we're running our way towards this little rootin' tootin' bar where they record home. I'm really excited for it. The whole goal of the first six years was to get famous, to sign the big deal. But once they got it, by late 2001, with five studio albums under their belt, the band was balancing their band checkbook when they noticed discrepancies. I'm assuming that's how finances work for everything, including it's all checkbooks. Well, you see, for them, because they found oil, they were checking all their oil rigs and buckets, and they're like, dang tootin', one of these is a spittoon. Somebody (laughs) swapped a black gold. I don't know why they sound like that. No, I know why. No, I know why. (laughs) So I'm imagining one of them found out that somebody's been stealing their ink. They took it up with their label. They confronted the multi-billionaire media titan, Sony, and accused them of shortchanging them $4 million through fraudulent accounting. Oh my god, Sony, how could you? All of that went to the PS2. (laughs) (laughs) They said that this had been stolen from them over a period of three years, essentially since they signed their contract, and that they wanted that money back. Now, Sony, blotting out the sun with its mighty pile of cash, uh, flicked the Dixie Chicks on the nose and said, what are you going to do about it? Believing their label to be robbing them blind, they walked, and Sony, of course, used that as a chance to sue them for breach of contract. The suit was filed in July 2001, but the chicks retaliated with a lawsuit of their own, challenging claims from Sony that their contract termination was unfounded and that they owed the label another five albums. The Dixie Chicks teamed up with Courtney Love and Amy Mann. Oh my god, this is the most powerful female group of all time now. This is like Endgame. (laughs) It really is. It's Endgame, but for female musicians. Sony calls up uh, Oasis and My Bloody Valentine, but it, it takes them a couple of years to show up. So <laughs> Amy Mann, Courtney Love, the Dixie Chicks, they have an upper hand here. Universal Music Group, Sony Music Entertainment, Warner Music, BMG, and EMI. Those were the, uh, those were the Thanos of this mighty, mighty <laughs> cavalcade of lawsuits. The Infinity Labels. All of whom were sued for unfair contracts and their tyrannical demands on artists. Courtney Love had left Universal after her contract expired in 1999. But the label sued her after that for $25 million, arguing that she still owed them five unreleased albums. And uh, Kurt Cobain that she killed, but... <laughs> Allegedly. Allegedly. I am I am more scared of Courtney Love than anyone else we will talk about on this show. <laughs> <laughs> one day, one episode. Attorneys for uh, Universal further claimed that Love was trying to, quote, create a new special constitution <laughs> for wealthy rock stars. This sounds really country to me. I don't know about you. In an October 2001 article in the Boston Globe, Love vowed that she would never settle the case against Universal outside of court, saying, quote, Ego-wise, what's better than having a law named after you? At least she's got her heart in the right place. Fame and fortune. She settled about eight months later, telling reporters that she'd be continuing the fight for fair artist treatment in Seattle. Quote, 
where it belongs. I guess she just wants to save grunge because that's all Seattle's known for other than some giant building. I, when I was reading up on this, I got to like Courtney Love's 2002 punk act wherein they described the whole project in about two sentences, one of which was like the former uh, bassist saying, yeah, Courtney got us all together and she was like, let's just really do it, you know, and let's leave that grunge shit behind. <laughs> <laughs> Seattle's only known for grunge, rain, in Grey's Anatomy. It's a really, really <laughs> awful place. I can't understand why she wanted to leave it all behind. Well, the folksy femmes were wrapping up their own out-of-court negotiations in 2002, ultimately winning their own record label out of Sony, named, quote, Open Wide Records. Oh my god, it's just like the song that, tr- that, that my mom knows. <laughs> the settlement afforded them more control, a better contract, and an increase in royalties, but Sony was still responsible for marketing and distribution of albums. Now, things at this point were looking great for the Southern songsters. They had a little extra family time, and they reached out to some very talented songwriters to fill out the next album with quality tracks that weren't over-polished or targeted at being another radio hit. They wanted something genuine. That's what it looks like, and, and so now, Jack, we're finally caught up. Today's episode narrows in on the album Home, their sixth studio album. It was written and recorded from 2001 to 2002 at Cedar Creek Recording in Austin, Texas. Written, that is, minus the eight songs they didn't write. In fact, all five of this album's singles weren't written by the Dixie Chicks. Landslide was by Fleetwood Mac, Travelin' Soldier was by Bruce Robison, Long Time Gone was by Daryl Scott, and Top of the World was by Panny Griffin. Holy fucking shit. Okay, I want to spoil something. I thought the sound was pretty good, but you literally listed all my favorite songs off of it. All the songs you liked? All the songs I liked (laughs) off of it. I I was like, wait, hold on. He said the first three, and I waited, and you kept going. Okay, that's... Maybe there's... What'd you think of Godspeed? (laughs) Um, It it put me to sleep, which is what it wanted to do. (laughs) Radney Foster wouldn't like to hear that, because in 1999, Radney wrote... Godspeed, but his wife suggested that he send it to the Dixie Chicks because Natalie Maine just had a baby. Aw, that's cute. I just find that a weird... Come on, Radney. My beautiful husband who I love. Don't hog this one. (laughs) (laughs) I know this girl. She just had a kid. It'll mean a lot to her if you give her your song. Those Dixies are just dying for a number one jam. Yeah, they're really struggling artists at this point. (laughs) No, but yeah, it's funny that you list all of the songs that I really enjoyed off of this because yep. I, I feel like <laughs> I, I don't really mind if there is a lot of other songwriters that help with the project as long as the people who are covering it have a lot of passion or a lot of technicality or something with their performance that elevates it. And I'm going to be honest, I, I listened to this album and I enjoyed it quite a bit, actually. I don't think I'm going to put it on after this episode or anything, but... They really rock Landslide. I really enjoyed their cover of that. It seems like a trend to me, the abundance of covers, like, throughout this genre. Bear in mind, you know, we've already stated you and I have very minimal country exposure, but (laughs) it seems to me like some country artists almost build their entire careers around other country covers. And that feels, like, super specific to this genre, you know? Yeah, it's a big country circle jerk. I see what you're saying. Like, it doesn't seem like a staple of rock music that every artist needs, like, one cover of fucking Crazy Train. Like, am I wrong? (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, there's a lot of rock covers that are famous because they go across other genres and stuff. It is really much like a folk and a country thing to make a name for yourself using other songs. I mean, like I mentioned, 
I listened to a lot of folk music. Bob Dylan started off as like a Woody Guthrie fanboy. He would take literally the chords and the melody and just change the words. And I'm assuming this is some sort of cultural thing that was just bred in the United States where we like to steal people's music. <laughs> you know, whether it's the blues, Rolling Stones stealing from all of that, or Bob Dylan stealing from like folk singers. Um, well, Bob Dylan was just really shooting for the most prolific songwriter in the history of time. <laughs> he is still fucking going. But the thing is, like, they eventually would evolve into their own thing once they got a bit of a grip on what they were doing. Led Zeppelin went from stealing blues music to, you know, creating things like Stairway to Heaven, these big epic hard rock masterpieces. Bob Dylan would start saying nonsense and everyone loved it. <laughs> But what did the Dixie Chicks? What did the Dixie Chicks do after this? Is what I'm wondering because I, I feel like this album was nice, but you haven't really given me enough dirt on it yet. I feel like oh yeah, we did get a giant supergroup with Amy Mann being like half of a Megazord. But that was on the prologue. That was all Act One. That's behind us. I know. No, you're I'm right, Jack. This is not Blunderphonics without something going wrong. I, I don't have much on the chaos behind the recording itself. The chaos here centers around the tour promoting home. Now, remember, this is late 2002, early 2003, about okay. 14 months after someone uh, pulled a bit of a dick move in lower Manhattan. Yeah, th but this was also pre-St. Anger, so the worst was yet to come. That's true. Now, the Dixie Chicks were by <laughs> no means insensitive uh, to, to the tragedy of 9-11. They, like uh, they performed in relief concerts and TV specials in the wake of 9-11, um, they were, of course, they were very sensitive to the issue and nobody would say otherwise. On March 10th, 2003, the trio were kicking off their top of the world tour. Their first show was in London at the Shepherd's Bush Empire Theater. Is any of this familiar to you, Jack? No, none of this is familiar to me. I, I, I'm not a huge concert person. I only follow the very most crazy concerts like my bloody Valentine blowing up dogs and things like that. So this is not ringing any bells to me right now. Between two songs, Natalie Maines said the following, quote, Just so you know, we're on the good side with y'all. We don't want this war, this violence, and we're ashamed that the president of the United States is from Texas. Okay. We got, got a little political, a little punk. A little political. Her. A little yeah. punk there. Yeah, a little bit punk. Um, and this is in London. Uh-oh. And this is the first night of their tour. And Bert, what she just said was remarkably tame by today's standards. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you, you, it sounds like most people I know nowadays. Now, right? let's just get. Uh, yeah, of course. And let's get facts. Let's lay out a timeline here, because this was 17 years ago. This was addressing rallies wherein millions across Europe were gathering to protest the coming war with Iraq, uh, which would begin nine days after these comments. And it's all her fault. The Bush oh, administration <laughs> lied to the American public that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and that he was also supporting terrorist actions by Al Qaeda. And the Dixie Chicks were our ambassador to London. Yes. Yes, they were. They were there for a diplomatic mission. Official business. Very official business. The world learned pretty damn quickly that Saddam uh, must have flushed those WMDs down the toilet before the cops showed up because they found nothing in an 18-month investigation following the country's occupation. Which he really shouldn't have because weapons of mass destruction do in fact clog pipes. Only rain down the drain. That's what I've always said. <laughs> As for the Al-Qaeda claims, declassified documents from the 9-11 Commission and a Senate Intelligence Committee confirmed that there was zero basis to the Bush administration's allegations. And surprise, 
They just lied to the U.S. public to use a national tragedy as an excuse to invade a sovereign nation. Yes, the majority of the country supported the war with Iraq, a little more than 60%, but the majority also would have preferred a diplomatic solution, and the majority also believed that the war was just an invitation for another 9-11 to happen. So naturally, everyone took the Dixie Chicks criticism well, and this all blew over like nothing happened. Uh, You've been listening to Blunder... Oh, shit. Let me just... (laughs) This always happens. Oh, this is so <laughs> embarrassing. Uh, what I meant to say was uh, the U.S. media lost its collective shit and country fans had an aneurysm. Great. You just can't win with us. It doesn't help that they were in London like they were talking behind our backs. Oh, God, they're going to get really angry. They're going to spit some tobacco in their faces. The Dixie Chicks of the new spittoon. Oh, no. The story was picked up by The Guardian in their review of the show the next day. And from there, it spun out of control. The overwhelming patriotism of country fans didn't exactly cotton to a valid criticism of known war criminals George W. Bush and Dick Cheney. Pundits across the nation apparently didn't have better shit to talk about in the lead up to actual war crimes and were chiding Maine for criticizing the president on foreign soil, which I don't know why that part matters, but... Well, if anything, it's an invitation to war with London. I mean, just because (laughs) they said it over in London, but we might as well blow them up now, because they all heard it. And the British deployed with us in the Iraq war. It wasn't like they were, you know, preaching into a uh, a, a liberal echo chamber, as it were. They were just saying, you know, I I don't support war. Very tame. Yeah, it was backhanded at Bush, but like, Homie kind of deserved it. (laughs) And it's so weird to me because, like, we're looking back at this. And we were both children at this point, so obviously we didn't understand the full breadth. But, Mm -hmm. yeah, it just sounds like they were saying something that was just negative about an administration. And apparently it had a lot of fanboys. It doesn't matter if it's music or if it's politics. Fanboys suck. It's early 2003. It's like they were they were so very close to a a point in which Bush criticism was the full blown, you know, comedy heaven uh, that it became by around 2004. Um, and, and of course, I wasn't cognizant back then. This is just what I remember. I remember jib jab and all this shit and, and Patton Oswalt's whole fucking career getting shaped in the mid 2000s. <laughs> I remember in third grade, they brought in like these fake ballots to teach people about voting. And mm-hmm. I, I remember some kid bullied me because he said, why aren't you voting for George Bush? And I'm like, I, I don't I don't really know, honestly. I like the name John Kerry better. And he's like, my parents voted for Bush. Are you saying my parents are stupid? Well, you know what? <laughs> it's been 17 years later. I think I am saying your parents are stupid. <laughs> that was the weirdest. I didn't have the guts to say it back then. I was hiding in Pokemon Emerald, but I have the guts now, goddammit. <laughs> I'd just vote for Ray Quaza if I could. <laughs> That, that little experiment where they brought us down to the library and had it. We went to different elementary schools, but I find it hilarious that we both had to do this. <laughs> they brought us down to the library. We did a little voting and we were eight. I, I would. I would what was the point? Uh, they, the point was to vote for what your parents want so that you don't get in trouble. <laughs> was this but, like uh, the most bizarre ass backwards like polling? <laughs> we want to figure out what kids think their parents are voting for. It was a secret test to see who was a liberal, because then they they all pointed their fingers and said, there he is, it's Jack, get him. And the fact that they didn't allow write-in voting was very, very cognizant. That was very well played on their <laughs> part, because 
God damn, if you think a lot of people wrote in Harambe in 2016, let me tell you, the the, the 08 <laughs> elementary bid really would have really oh, would have skyrocketed for Ash Ketchum. I, I'm just saying though, Raquaza would ban weather battles, and I'm all for that. I will donate <sighs> all of my money to his campaign. Dragonflying 2020. Whitney really would have made Medicare for all a reality. <laughs> Just saying, with all those potions. Oh my god. We need a video game podcast, please. Oh my god, we have a video game podcast, we need to do a movie podcast. But, let's try to get back on track to, uh, what were we talking about? Dixie Chicks? They're getting crucified now? Yeah, everyone got mad. Everyone got mad at once. So 9-11, uh, and the ensuing war on terror was, and I really hate to say this, uh, the single biggest cash magnet for country music. Oh man, oh man, did the country scene not appreciate them poking at their livelihood. A boycott campaign picked up pretty quickly. Their top song on the Billboard Top 100, Landslide by Fleetwood Mac, dropped like a bomb over Baghdad and fell 33 spots in a single week. I hope you're proud of that. I'm, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I, that's the only response I deserved. WTDR-FM in Talladega, Alabama received 250 calls in a single day, wherein callers said every imaginable, patriotic, misogynistic complaint about Maine's until the station said, fuck it, we're pulling them off the air. Please stop calling us. Oh my God. The people won. The people won. Yes. This is one of those rare instances where a boycott campaign actually kind of accomplished something. Because this didn't start a trend, but it was a sign of what was to come. A grassroots blacklist campaign slowly started knocking them off the air one by one all throughout the country. And before the year was up, the Dixie Chicks appeared to be off the radio for good. Oh, the one time that people complain and they're actually listened to and they're wrong. This blue grassroots campaign to censor these ladies. Oh, my God. And said one offhanded sentence that was not even that obscene like like that's the thing i like i don't know if any of them said more than this it doesn't sound nope. like it it's like they're it. just like the war is it. dumb and you know everyone agrees to that as far as i'm aware at this point it wouldn't be until the end of the bush administration that they would finally get back on the airwaves oh my god so so that was five years of a radio blackout for them i'm assuming they made enough money to at least coast through some of that That makes me feel so sad for them. Fans accumulated in Bossier City, Louisiana to stack their CDs up in a big old pile and guess. Um, Guess what they did? Something with the spittoon. Mm. Uh, They piled them up with the Metallica records. They had like a huge bonfire party. (laughs) Oh, not burning. Uh, No, they hit him with a 33,000 pound tractor and ran him over. God fucking damn it, tractors. (laughs) What is with country fans and their one vehicle? There's so many others you could choose related to farming (laughs) equipment. It's got to be the fucking tractor. Like, of all the... Really paint yourself into a stereotype corner. <laughs> like, you could be so much more creative. You could ha- throw him into a Jethro Tull. Come on. Like, <laughs> I, I, that would certainly pique my interest. But the fact that it's a tractor, it's like... Ugh. Another Kansas City radio station, WDAFAM, Kansas City Mo, set trash cans outside of their station for listeners to come throw away their Dixie Chick CDs en masse. <laughs> This is a really collaborative effort. It's like everyone is enjoying hating on these women trying to make it big. It really brought them all together. If there's one thing you if there's one thing the country could get behind it's hating powerful women. <laughs> God damn, that's good. A jukebox <laughs> company was flooded with complaints. 
I'm assuming this is a digital jukebox because God, this is inconvenient otherwise, uh, was flooded with complaints <laughs> to remove any and all Dixie Chick songs from all of their machines. Because goddamn, if we're going to have another person say the same words, they can. <laughs> if I want to hear Landslide, I only want to hear it from Fleetwood or any of the other 20 artists that have covered it, not the Dixies. <laughs> Fellow country star, Toby Keith, famously joined the fray by performing in front of a backdrop that featured a gigantic image of Natalie Maines besides Saddam Hussein. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't think Saddam was pro-war either. I don't think he, I don't think he wanted to die. If this doesn't make any sense at all, Toby. You didn't think this fucking thing. For, he, he, it's like his son learned Photoshop. He's like, oh, we could do anything with this. Like, just just put Satan. Everyone hates Satan. <laughs> you're gonna get you're gonna have fun with this next one. Oh no. On April 24th, 2003, the Dixie Chicks launched a publicity campaign to explain their position. Now, Natalie in the in the days following the incident gave a few apologies, um, but they did not take. Everybody was just as pissed. So the band also appeared naked on the May 2nd cover of Entertainment Weekly magazine. <laughs> But photoshopped onto their bodies, like tattoos, were the slogans such as, quote, traitors, Saddam's angels, Dixie sluts, proud Americans, hero, free speech, and brave, all printed across their bodies. Buzzwords and buttocks. It's a great way to win the American people over. <laughs> the slogans represented the labels, both positive and negative, that had been placed on them in the aftermath of main statements. Bush. George W. Bush <laughs> responded to the controversy in an interview with crack journalist and not biased human being Tom Brokaw on April 24th. And he said, I only read it for and the articles. <laughs> I did not. Buy. He thought it was a completely different magazine. Quote, the Dixie Chicks are free to speak their mind. I'm going to do this now. They can say whatever they want to say. Uh, uh, <laughs> they shouldn't have their feelings hurt just because some people don't want to buy their record when they can speak out. The freedom's a two-way street. I don't really care what the Dixie Chicks say. I don't. I want to do what I think's right for the American people. I mean, people. And if some singers or, or Hollywood, I mean Hollywood stars, feel like speaking out, that's fine. That's the great thing about American. <laughs> I have no idea what part of those you added and which part of those were real. I'm going to assume it's all 100% quoted. No, Means no adding allegedly. It's fine. Ironically, <laughs> ironically, he responded a lot faster to this incident than he did with 9-11 when he was reading The Ugly Duckling. The same year, the American Red Cross refused a $1 million promotional partnership with the Dixie Chicks, citing uh, their desire to avoid any controversy. That is one mood they can't fix. It wasn't the only thing that got shut down because of their uh, controversial remarks. The documentary that covers this whole incident, Shut Up and Sing, that was turned down by NBC. They refused to run ads for it, citing a policy barring ads dealing with any, quote, public controversy. That's just not good television. People love controversy. <laughs> I would love to watch this. This sounds really interesting. The film's distributor, Harvey Weinstein, said, uh, We're going to need to bleep that out. It's a sad commentary about the level of fear in our society that a movie about a group of courageous entertainers who were blacklisted for exercising their right of free speech is now itself being blacklisted by corporate America. Uh, I mean, I 100% stand by this quote from this unnamed company. <laughs> this, it's it's so crazy to me that Harvey Weinstein is calling out blacklisting when he blacklisted anyone that didn't fuck him. <laughs> yeah, crazy, right? <laughs> 
When I listened to this album, I did not understand the full breadth. I just figured they stopped because they didn't need to do this anymore. Like, they made a shit ton of money. America was, like, mad at them. So they just decided to give it a rest. This is batshit. It kind of sounds like Mains. Who's the lead singer? Yeah, Mains. Mains. It sounds like it's mostly her who's kind of stoking the fire. Are the other two, like, also standing by her? Are they being roped along? I can find very little quotes from the sisters on this one. Are they real? They could be animatronics for the Chuck E. Cheese uh, (laughs) jamboree. They were repurposed country bears. Natalie's pretty uh, unapologetic and outspoken. And what's so funny is that was so charming about her before she unapologetically said something about George W. Bush. And then it's a problem. Now I hate that she's unapologetic and speaks her mind. I'm for one kind of happy that she's sticking her ground for the most part. I know she had to do that one uh, remark to try to save some face at one point, Mm -hmm. but you know what? Good for her. It's good to see that this is a band that has a backbone, even though they said something that isn't even really that controversial nowadays. It's something that I actually kind of admire. It makes me... Oh, absolutely. uh, It makes me sickened by my own species in general, but... You yeah, know. it sucks that the criticism is necessary, but it's 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 great that the landscape has evolved to uh, embrace this kind of talk um, and shout down the jackasses who are like, shut up and play. I hate it when artists creatively express anything uh, that I don't like. <laughs> it, it, I, it might just be one of those things where people don't like hearing that the people in charge don't know what they're doing. And when they hear their entertainment saying it, it just makes their wires go fucking crazy and they burn everything down. But... I'm happy to hear that it seems like Mains is fighting back against the controversy. It's not something that she's buckling under. The one thing I just want to hear is what happened to the band after all of this, because I haven't really heard much about the Dixie Chicks since I was a kid. I don't know if they even recovered from this. They went on to release another album after this, four years later in 2006, called Taking the Long Way, and uh, the singles were largely ignored, failed to penetrate the top 35 hot country songs charts. And in June 2006, Emily Robison noted the lack of support from other country music performers, saying that, quote, a lot of artists cashed in on being against what we said or what we stood for because that was promoting their career, which was a horrible thing to do. A lot of pandering started going on. And you'd see soldiers and the American flag in every single video. And it became a sickening display of ultra-patriotism, which I think is a perfectly accurate way to put it. And Maines commented, (laughs) quote, The entire country may disagree with me, but I don't understand the necessity for patriotism. Why do you have to be a patriot? About what? This is our land? Why? You can like where you live and like your life, but as for loving the entire country, I don't see why people care about patriotism. Which I think is... If that had been what she said in 2003, that would have been even more damaging, I feel. It's so weird to me nowadays because that's the sentiment a lot of Americans have. I don't know if it's just because a lot of people online just feel like they're more free to say this kind of shit, but this just kind of sounds like Reddit to me nowadays. Most of them are like, yeah, why be proud? You know, this is a shitty place. We stole it. It's, it's that's just... It's a frank discussion. And you know, yeah, there's, there's something to be said for nihilism. I think this group best of all would see where it really hurt that our response to a national tragedy was to uh, just go into America can do no wrong mode. Uh, we we can do it much bigger and much better than you. Yep. We're going to blow you to smithereens. Yep. The classic move. So like I said, the singles for that next album, Taking the Long Way, completely ignored. Now that said, it was still the ninth best selling country album for the year. 
Which, if you consider how many country albums there are, that's practically like it sold one copy. <laughs> Careful now, you're going to hurt all our country fans. All two of them. But there is a, a fairly significant hiatus, um, which weirdly enough starts at the end of the Bush administration. And so there was a 14-year gap between albums. Now that would suggest, Jack, that we got a Dixie Chicks album coming this year, it's called Gaslighter. Oh my god, it sounds topical. Its first single was released March 4th. Oh yeah, it kind of has a little bit of a In Rainbows a little bit to yeah. it. Yeah, that's what it reminds me it's of. It's like the text and the bright colors. Now, this was slated to come out this year. In fact, it was, uh, it was slated to come out, I believe, May 1st. But due to the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, which hopefully is a dated reference by the time you're listening to this, hope you're doing well, the album's release was delayed indefinitely. We don't know when it's coming out. So we know for certain that even the United States does not want them to release this album. The infection was made just to stop them. That is precisely right. Deep state. Deep, deep state <laughs> George, Pizzagate. George Bush has some scientists working on this virus just to keep them from releasing Gaslighter. The globalists don't want Gaslighter to come out. You heard it here first. That's so strange to me that they've been so overtly political like, have they said anything related to the current administration? Or are we just not going to pay any attention to them and their politics and mainstream media? I've heard virtually nothing from them regarding the Trump administration. Can you imagine when this album comes out and it's all pro-Trump? <laughs> Can you imagine how fucking wild that would be? <laughs> the complete 180. <laughs> They've been completely replaced with three lookalikes and they're all... Well, I will say that I'm not going to listen to it when it does come out, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no intention to. God, I can't stand country music. We should give our due diligence. What are your thoughts on Home? You said you liked it? Yeah, I, I brought it up pretty early on in the episode. Yeah, I actually did enjoy it. I am not a big fan of country in general. Like I said, I don't listen to that much. A lot of what I do listen to is alternative country. So it's a lot of crossover with indie rock and shit like that. This is a style called bluegrass, so it's like mountain music, like they have the banjo and the fiddle and all that shit. That being said, you know, I did enjoy it. They're all really good at their instrumentation. I thought a lot of the arrangements of the covers were nice. Landslide is a song that I absolutely adore no matter who plays it. So, you know, that was just a win for me. Um, if anything, this is one of those country albums that I don't mind. The kind of country I hate is the super glossy tractor, naked girl, drinking on a summer night, like the same shit you hear over and over. And at the very least, this album at least felt like they had stories they were telling. It wasn't just the core concepts of sex, drugs, and drinking. Um, so I, I really actually enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, the slower songs kind of put me to sleep. One of them was even a lullaby. Apparently they stole for their baby. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't think it's something I'm going to listen to all that often, but I'm glad I did. I did not expect to enjoy the Dixie Chicks. I was actually expecting like some Shania Twain, Taylor Swift, super duper like poppy mess. But You know, some uh, Carrie Underwood. Yeah, well, it was a lot more <laughs> gritty than I expected. It, it was it was nice and I will never listen to it again, but I'd really like that I listened <laughs> to it once. Sometimes there's just things you listen to. You're like, it's not my thing, but I can see the appeal. You know, Jack, I'm going to slide you some notes here. Um, your performance review as okay. the co-host, um, as the one receiving. You're supposed to get like really mad about the album, even if it's OK. You got to okay. say it's the worst thing you've ever heard. So let's do that again. Let's do a take two. OK. Um, 
Uh, this part right here where I'm supposed to call all three of them evil anti-American pigs, I can I say something a little bit nicer? Or? Well, do you see the part at the bottom where I where I drew them next to Saddam? Oh, there. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I hope that answers right, your question. One more time. If that, if that. Um, this album fucking sucked. Like, I don't understand why they had to get all political with the fucking concert. But whenever they started playing the music, I was like, just turn it off. This sounds nothing like... I, I can't do it, Spencer. I can't. I can't I'm sorry. You're, you're being recast for the angry video game nerd. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, so he knows how to get mad at media. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, oh. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you enjoyed it, but... Jack, One of these days, I will recommend something to you that you will enjoy, and I can't wait for that. We need another Steely Dan. Steely Dan. Steely Dan did it. Jack, what is <laughs> humanity's worst invention, and why is it the fiddle? You know, the fiddle is just a violin that is played annoyingly. Yep. You know, like, it can be good. I would argue the accordion's worse. I'm glad there's no accordion, or kazoo. Kazoo, yes. Accordion, no. No? Weird Al Yankovic does not deserve to be smeared like this. That's fair. I've listened to uh, several artists who use the fiddle, and maybe it's just because they don't always use it, but it doesn't bother me that much. I just can't. I can't. It's part of my greater distaste for, like, popular country. Like It's, it, it's one of those, eight, like, typical things. It's probably the same reason why people hate rap music with, like, misogynistic lyrics. It's just everywhere, and if you're not a fan, you can't ignore it. I've gone over the commercial success of popular you know, quote unquote, mainstream country, um, which has disgusting roots. I've gone over that in the cock and bulls episode on Henry Ford. But, you know, what top 100 chart isn't loaded with samey, uninspired, blatantly copied material, right? Like, yeah, it's it's the it's a matter of what elements that are constantly used do you like versus dislike. So and the, and the hundreds upon hundreds of covers of the same songs in country <laughs> really doesn't help shake up that argument. And maybe I could forgive that if it was at least a good sound they were spitting out over and over. But instead of grit or distortion or percussion, the best tone that this genre can latch onto is like an oppressive level of twang. <laughs> and yeah, uh, it makes me wonder because this is not a genre that a lot of people outside of the United States give two fucks about. So it, I don't know if it's just because we've been around it. I'm sure you have grown up with just as many people as I have who absolutely adore country, but they just listen to it on the surface level of, I just like the sound of the twang. And that's not something I could get behind. This is one of those genres where I'm completely fine putting in the back saying, you know, I like Johnny Cash because he sings about shooting people in the head. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's like, you know, the only country artists I need in my life are Johnny Cash, uh, <laughs> John Denver. Marty Robbins, and only for the song Big Iron. <laughs> and Neil Young, if you would count him, but he borderlines. <laughs> I mean, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young is a country band, in my opinion. Yeah, of, yeah, of course. And Ohio is a great song. I've heard some popular commentaries on why old school country's greatest hits, like Dolly Parton, Willie Nelson, are what country should be. But even those don't really have a special place in my heart. Like, I can't disingenuously tell you that I, oh, I respect what country really is at its roots. Like, do you have a favorite country song? Me, personally? Yeah. Um, well, if we're counting Neil Young, like, Neil Young's one of my favorite artists of all time. I love a lot of the shit he does, but my favorite songs from him are, like, when he's barely country, like, Hey, Hey, My, My, when he's, like, borderline grunge, mm -hmm. shit like that. You know, I've always been on that side of it. So it's kind of hard for me to pick outside of like something that people would consider 
just folk music, you know, which is basically country without the annoying American twang and all those crappy elements. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think that I could see that for just national music in general, no matter where you're from. I'm sure there's like Indian pop music that people that live there are all sick of that we have never even heard of. I think there's this cultural thing where a nation has to have a specific genre of music that it cherishes and it's like, it's mine. And I don't know, when that's all you're holding on to is like patriotism, I I just need a little bit more than that personally. Even the parts that aren't patriotic, the parts that celebrate rural culture, in the case of modern country music, modern popular, you know, radio hit country music, it's so fake. Nobody loves the American Southern accent enough to hear some guy from L.A. like mimic it for a radio hit. It is just marketing a sound. It's not marketing like the creative vision behind it. Like Toby Keith's personality, from what I hear, is absolute dog shit. But nobody cares. They want to hear about Red Solo cups because that's what they drink from whenever they all group up at the back of their daddy's cabin, you know? That, that yep. It's the image. And, you know, I'm sure you can argue that for a lot of genres. Look at Sex Pistols, say that's all about the image, whatever. But at least there's something more to it than that. Like, I feel like Sex Pistols could be dangerous in a way. It's like uh, the identity politics of music, right? Exactly. Exactly. If I have any favorite country song, it's probably Country Roads by John Denver. And I owe that to the hype for a very bad Fallout game. <laughs> Mine's probably hurt by Johnny Cash because it makes me feel like I should be dead. And it's a Nine Inch Nails song, which is barely not not country. So it's just not my genre. It's not my genre. It's not my genre, but that doesn't mean it can't be yours. You've been listening to Blunder Phonics, a weekly music show where Jack and I uh, try and hurt each other. He succeeds. I don't. As usual, you can find plugs to all of our other projects down in the description of this episode. But Jack, is there anything special you want to plug? I would love to plug my page over at Rate Your Music, The Dissonant Opinion. You can find me there and recommend me any kind of music you think would be interesting to talk about on the podcast. I have a list where I am compiling all the albums we're talking about, as well as future recommendations. I've had a ton of great responses of people telling me to cover a whole bunch of albums, none of which were the Dixie Chicks, which is why we've got Spencer and his secret pals to give us this. Because I think this was a wonderful episode, too. There's just so much to talk about. And I would love to hear if any of you out there have any stories you would like us to talk about. Absolutely. Um, Because nothing makes us happier than knowing that you guys are not only listening, but have stuff you want us to actively talk about. Spencer, is there anything you would like to plug? Keep an eye on my YouTube channel. I'm in the middle of editing a video wherein I say 304 nice things about Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty. That's a lot of nice things to say about a game, Spencer. Why why 304? Because that's how many times I got spotted. I really hope... You like not playing a snake. <laughs> you can check that out. The link to my YouTube channel is down in the description. Uh, I've also got my show, The Cock and Bull. And my brother has a show called Mark's Madness. I highly recommend listening to it. Check out the State and Revolution chapters. And Jack, if there's nothing else, what are we listening to next week? Well, Spencer, I was really excited to start talking about metal music. And it seemed that the instant we talked about Metallica, you frantically tried to crawl away to country music. But I'm going to take my giant meat hook and drag you back even further into metal. We are covering one of death metal's most infamous acts of all time, Mayhem, next episode. Oh, my skin. I hope you're ready because there are some people 
who take death metal a little bit too seriously. I don't think so. I'll have to hear it to believe it. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. Night-night, Saddam's little angels. <laughs> <laughs>